hello everybody. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at LSE. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school for uh, the literary festival event this afternoon, which is based around Donna Thompson's book, The Four Walls of My Freedom. Uh, Donna's going to talk about themes from the book for about 25 minutes or so, and then Geraldine Bedell uh, will act as her first discussant, and then we'll open it up for, for Q&A. Uh, my main job is really just to act as a facilitator and to ask you all now, please, to turn off anything irritating. Um, we're going to keep this fairly informal, um, but I do want to say a word or two at the beginning about both Donna and Geraldine. I'm delighted, of course, that you're both here. Uh, Donna, I'm very pleased to say, is someone that I've known now for two or three years, and I would count as a friend. Uh, Donna is a Canadian citizen, I think born in Montreal, and um, she made her first career in Canada as an actor, a director, and a teacher. And Donna, of course, is still very active in the arts uh, now here in London. After the birth of her son Nicholas in 1988, Donna has also become a passionate advocate of the citizenship rights of people with disabilities, or what mainstream society describes as disabilities. Nicholas might look on his life very differently. I've seen Donna described as a disability activist who is noisy in a good way, <laughs> um, which I think is a very nice moniker to have. Uh, Donna came to London in 2006 when her husband Jim uh, was posted here as the Canadian High Commissioner. And in a recent interview, Donna was quoted as saying that she lives her life between intensive care units and Buckingham Palace. Uh, during her time in London, Donna somehow also found time to write a book, uh, The Four Walls of My Freedom, uh, which uses the work of a number of philosophers, contemporary philosophers, and particularly uh, the great Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, to think about the meanings and the politics of disability and about the duty of care that states should provide to people lacking conventional bodily capabilities. The Four Walls of My Freedom is a deeply personal and moving book, but it's also a wry, committed, and expansive volume uh, that really will be of interest to everybody here. At heart, I think, it's a book about the conditions of existence of freedom and human dignity. Uh, Geraldine Bedell is, has already reviewed Donna's book, and we're delighted to have her here today as the main respondent. Uh, Geraldine will be well known to many of you. Uh, she's written regularly for The Observer and for other newspapers, and you will know her as well for some of her radio programs, uh, including I'm Doing It For Me, which was a discussion of why people choose to have plastic surgery, and What Is A Wife uh, for Radio 4. Now, we were just talking beforehand, and Geraldine, um, who is the founder of the website, Agebomb is currently developing a new project for Mumsnet, uh, which will be launched soon and will be called Grandsnet. Um, she once wrote that she's getting older. Um, I think we can all sort of relate to that one, but it's actually quite a profound observation, I think. Uh, Geraldine's the author of a number of novels, including in 2009, The Gulf Between Us, and just a few years ago as well, she wrote the Make Poverty History Handbook. Uh, so we're delighted to have Donna with us and Geraldine, and I think we'll get cracking straight away. So the floor is yours, Donna. Thank you.
uh, I think, very interested in, um, to, to, to come here today and to, to think in preparation about the idea of crossing borders, which is, of course, the theme of this uh, literary festival. Um, and I wanted to, to kind of introduce my family, first of all, uh, to all of you in case, I know there's a lot of friends here, but those of you who don't know me or my family, um, I'd like to introduce you. So this is, this is the cover of the book, and uh, it is, of course, my husband Jim, that's me, um, and my daughter when she was little, and Nicholas on Jim's shoulders, uh, that was us on holiday um, a few years ago. Um, we, um, when I was pregnant, um, I mean, pregnancy in itself, and the birth of a new baby, is a huge border crossing for anyone. Um, and this was me and Jim, um, very excited to be having our first baby, and, um, and obviously very, very happy. We, in a sense, felt that we knew where we were going um, in crossing this border. Um, in actual fact, we found out that we didn't know where we were going, and I think that is the, uh, actually quite a common experience in many people of children. Uh, there are many surprises about parenthood. So, um, when Nicholas was born, we didn't know that he had disabilities, um, and that was that picture of my mother-in-law uh, shortly after um, Nicholas was born, and this is a picture after we knew that he had severe disabilities, and I can tell you that that's another huge border crossing. Um, there's a chapter in my book called uh, Welcome to Holland, and Welcome to Holland is a story that's quite well known to a lot of parents um, of children with disabilities because it, it's, it's an iconic story that explains the experience quite well of uh, understanding that your child is going to be very, very different. And the story is that you get packed to go on holiday and you're planning to go to Italy and you've got the guidebooks, you know about the food, you have your maps ready, you have your, your flights confirmed and your boarding pass in your hand. And halfway to Italy, there is an announcement that's made by the pilot that says, I'm sorry, this flight is being rerouted to Holland. You are going to Holland and you, you know nothing about it. You have no guidebooks. You really have no idea what you're going. You probably packed the wrong things. But when you get to Holland, you realize that Holland is actually a beautiful place with tulips and Rembrandt and lots of lovely things that you just didn't know existed and you weren't quite prepared for. Um, in any case, that is a very good analogy, I think, for the border, border crossing, which is the receiving of a diagnosis of uh, multiple disabilities in your baby. Um, so we have a very happy family. And we have a wonderful daughter as well. My second born child is Natalie. Um, and Nicholas always had lots of friends and friends over, and in many ways we had um, lots of signs of kind of normal, happy, busy family. Um, and this is us most recently, just this past winter. That's what my kids look like now. And um, that's we were, we managed to bring Nicholas skating in, in Hyde Park. So that's my family. Um, I, when someone asked me once, why did you write this book? Um, I have to say that 
I thought of um, myself as a teenager with my life. Nicholas is very medically complex, and in the book I describe a lot of the very, very difficult circumstances that he has endured in uh, chronic pain, uh, many surgeries, I think it's about 64 hospitalizations now, um, and there have been very tough times, there's no doubt about it. Um, but I, you know, I, I never thought that our experience in our family had anything to do with anyone else. I really considered that it was sort of our own business and it didn't have any particular meaning um, outside of, <coughs> excuse me, meaning for me personally or us individually in our family. And then one day, uh, I was up in um, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and my husband was receiving a, an honorary doctorate um, up there, and the professor who nominated him for that was chatting with me, and I was telling her uh, that I was very, very interested in the development sector, because I was interested in what could we learn from the experience of extreme poverty for the disability movement. Um, and she said, have you ever heard of Amartya Sen? And I said, no, who's she? I really had no idea who Amartya Sen was. So she began to tell me that Amartya Sen is um, an, econ an, an economist and a philosopher who was looking closely at the experience of extreme poverty in India and elsewhere in the world, particularly in India though, um, and trying to figure out how people could have a life that they value and have reason to value within the circumstances of, of, of real adversity. And when she said that, I really experienced an epiphany. I began to think more and more about this idea of how can you have a life that you value and have reason to value if you feel an outsider and you're dealing with adversity. And it began <coughs> to be an idea that was like a coat hanger upon which I could um, understand, almost like the double helix, everything falls into place and begins to make sense. And our experience had something very profound to tell us about how to live a life span that could offer, to, could be meaningful, and how could we begin to understand issues such as dependency, receiving care, giving care, how to support mothers of young babies, how can we look after an elderly population. And the ethics and economics began to fall into an ordered kind of um, a pattern for me to better understand how my personal experience could begin to inform that broad discussion. So I'm just going to read a little bit about the capability approach um, from my book. <coughs> Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize in 1998 for his work in combining the disciplines of economics and philosophy. He advocated dispensing with the usual measures of assessing poverty, such as household income and GDP, believing they offered insufficient insight into the real causes of human misery and injustice. He began to explore poverty 
through the lens of the choices or freedoms that individual ha individuals have within circumstances of deprivation. The key idea of the capability approach is that social arrangements should expand people's capabilities or their freedom to promote whatever activities and lifestyle they value. Sen argues that the central concern of having a decent and valued life worth living is that of freedom. It is not money and it is not accomplishments. The approach examines the range of possibilities for human flourishing within a given set of circumstances, especially circumstances involving adversity. An example that Sen often uses to illustrate his capability approach is that of two starving people. One is in the last stages of a hunger strike, the other a victim of a prolonged drought. <coughs> Measured without benefit of Sen's approach, these two individuals appear identical. It is Sen's approach that offers us insight into their very options or possible choices for action to alleviate their suffering. Sen calls this their capability space. In his Nobel Prize winning autobiography, Sen wrote, the approach explored sees individual advantage not merely as op opulence or utility, but primarily in terms of the lives people manage to live and the freedom they have to choose the kind of life they have reason to value. The basic idea here is to pay attention to the actual capabilities that people end up having. These capabilities depend both on our physical and mental characteristics as well as on social opportunities and influences, and can thus serve as the basis not only of assessment of personal advantage, but also of an efficiency and equity of social policies. Significantly, Sen uses the word equity rather than equality, an important distinction for those concerned with disability. The word equality applied to people with handicapping conditions has often led to abandonment, such as the child in a, a mainstream school with no support services because extra help would be unequal treatment. <coughs> it seems to me that equity <coughs> is a much more helpful aspiration, one that encompasses the recognition of capacity and resilience on the part of vulnerable in individuals, as well as those who love and support them. This approach shifts attention away from the medical model of disability to a view of personal freedom and the choices that one has given the effects of impairment on those available choices. Effectively, the disability experience is positioned alongside gender and age as just one aspect of human diversity. So, um, I guess, you know, anyone here who has cared for an aging parent or someone um, with uh, care, high care needs, a newborn baby, um, realizes, will know from personal experience that, that um, the, the giving of care requires a, a particular transparency on the part of the caregiver. You begin to be completely subsumed in the needs of another. Um, this can be, um, it's obviously a very isolating experience, um, but it's a very rich experience at the same time. Um, <clears throat> but I think uh, seen through the lens of the capability approach, you can begin to see um, how uh, looking at personal freedom that a person has, uh, even if they have very high care needs, is a path to flourishing. 
is a pathway to human flourishing. So Nicholas now, for example, um, is almost entirely bedbound. He's tube-fed. He has low vision. He um, has no hand function, and he's nonverbal. Uh, and that all sounds sounds quite dire. But in fact, he has a very very rich life. He is a seller on eBay. He's taking courses on the Open University. He uses an iPad to communicate. Um, he is he has many interests. He has an ice hockey blog. Uh, and he goes on Facebook, and he has Hotmail, he has friends all over the world. Technology, of course, is a huge advantage for him. He has a life that is very diminished, but very rich. And I think we, um, you know, we, we, we have to look as a society at a number of issues when we look at a case like the Nicholas Wrights of this world. We have to think, how do we value them? If Nicholas is never going to be employable, what is his human value? And why should a taxpayer pay for him or care about him? So there are many philosophical issues that reveal themselves when you go down this capability path with respect to our own society. I mean, um, Sen has, has written a lot um, obviously on uh, issues of extreme poverty, but I was very, very relieved when I spoke to him and I said, um, Professor Sen, I uh, would like to use your capability approach to evaluate um, my own experience. And I'm a Canadian middle-class person with middle-class entitlements, and I would like to use your experience as a, um, not a minimum, standards approach, but a maximum standard approach. Um, why would I want lower standards for Nicholas than I want for my daughter Natalie? So I was worried that he would say, you can't do that. You can't use the capability approach that way. Um, and I would have to throw out um, three years of research. But um, luckily he said, no, it's very interesting what you're doing. He said, um, I would be very disappointed if the capability approach had nothing to offer uh, humanity outside of um, the work that I'm doing and the applications that I'm uh, researching and talking about. So I, I was very grateful and happy that he said that. And um, I think what that has to tell us is that we have so much to learn. I mean, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and there's no greater necessities or evidence of it than extreme poverty in the slums of India. So I think we, we have much, much, much to learn um, for our society, for our social policy, for our ethics and economics uh, from the development sector and from the genius uh, of Amartya Sen. Um, one of the pillars of uh, how uh, a capability approach could be set into action um, is, in my experience, in the case of disability and a developed world or first world setting, um, is the idea of interconnectedness, interdependence, and personal support networks. I'm a huge fan of um, coordinating the efforts of people in communities to support vulnerable individuals. Um, and 
I just want to read a, one more little um, short passage uh, from my book about personal support networks and how it, that relates to um, people who are very have high needs being able to have a life that they value. So, a few years ago, I happened upon an obituary of a woman who had had many children and grandchildren. I recall being struck by the words, written by a grandchild and suffused with love. Although there were so many in our family, she made each of us feel known and loved. In knowing and loving someone, there is a suggestion of unconditional acceptance made personal and a steadfast loyalty. This woman must have been a wonderful listener. To me, this is a description of an ideal mother or grandmother. To understand how this understanding of mother's love must inform our compassionate acts, it is important to look at how to care for those deemed least worthy of receiving that love. Helen Prejean, the nun depicted in the book and film Dead Man Walking, is one example of offering the most challenging compassion. Even our worst criminals are some mother's son. Nothing in this story suggests that crimes committed by these men should, be, should not be punishable by society and the law, but there is a clear recognition that human contact with at least one compassionate listener is important even for the most hardened criminals who are facing the death penalty. Closer to home, I recall one story told to me by Vicki Kamak at my disability organization Canada Plan. An elderly woman approached staff at Plan in Vancouver with a difficult request. Her only daughter had received a life sentence in a forensic psychiatric facility and had already served some years. The elderly mother feared that with her own passing, her daughter would never have another visitor. The woman asked whether Plan could find someone to visit her daughter and bring her favorite chocolate chip cookies once a month. The staff at Plan agreed to try and a paid facilitator or community connector visited the daughter in prison once a month for one hour. Eleven monthly visits passed without not one word exchanged between the two women. The daughter refused to speak or acknowledge the facilitator at all. At the end of a year and on her twelfth visit, the facilitator said to the prisoner, your mom has asked me to visit you because she is worried that she is dying soon. After your mom dies, it's possible you will never have another visitor. Today is my last visit with you because I agreed with your mom that I would try for a year to help you. What would you like me to do next month? The woman looked up from her lap for the first time in 11 months and said, you can do what you want. The plan facilitator arrived at the prison the next month with chocolate chip cookies. During their months of silence, the facilitator had passed the time by knitting. Eventually, the facilitator taught the prisoner to knit. In this special case, the facilitator dropped her paid role and rather than introducing her to a, an unpaid friend, became the prisoner's friend herself. I recall telling this story to the board of directors of Lifetime Networks Ottawa, a plan affiliate organization that I helped to found. One of the directors was dismissive, remarking, well, if you go around saying that our charity helps murderers who are insane, we're never going to get any support in this town. I believe that he missed the point. The point of the story is the notion that the mother-daughter 
relationship, that mother-daughter relationship, <clears throat> is sacred to civil society. We must not allow anyone to be, un to be found unworthy of at least one caring relationship. Even those who by all appearances do not deserve a speck of human kindness. Central to this understanding is that one half of that particular relationship was a mother who was beside herself with grief and worry. Plan trumpets safety and security through caring relationships, but this safety and security is for all who choose it, not just some. So, um, I think that's where I'll end um, for now, and um, I think Geraldine and I are going to chat now. <laughs> Yes, yeah, sure. sure. So, um, as Stuart said, I'm here partly because I have an interest in ageing and issues arising from ageing populations. And when I came across Don's book, um, I was very impressed by it because um, the questions that she raises about dependency increasingly affect all of us, or have the potential to affect all of us. Um, they affect us morally, of course, but they also increasingly affect us practically. Um, it's estimated that in 10 years' time, one million people will be living with dementia in the UK. And um, the world's population over the age of 80 is rising very fast. I think it's going to be up 233% from its 2008 figure by 2040. So um, issues of caring and dependency are all around us. I also very much admired Donna's book when I read it because um, it's a combination of memoir and reflection. And Donna has worked very hard, I think, to avoid writing a misery memoir. Um, but she makes it very clear that her experience is hard won and, is, and that she is entitled to her authority. Um, but as well as writing about the crises that she's been through, about getting up for every 45 minutes in the night at certain periods in Nicholas's life, um, and about the constant hospitalizations and dealing with your child's pain, um, she also reflects in a very kind of mature way and a very sort of um, measured way about what it means to lead a good life um, and what, um, what dependency and caring call for from all of us. Um, and the conclusions that she's reached through her reading of Amartya Sen and other philosophers um, offer us a, a new way, a new way of potentially looking at the good life and at the value of caring and actually what it means to be human. And, of course, if you're religious, it's very easy. I mean, Donna actually writes at one point in the book that she gets Nicholas baptised and she thinks, well, that's good, that's one institution that can't turn back on us. And I hope that, in fact, it hasn't. But for Donna, that's not enough, and for many of us, that is not enough. And so she doesn't shy away from asking, well, what beyond that is the justification for Nicholas's existence and Nicholas's value, and why it is that Nicholas's quality of life matters not just to Nicholas and Donna and their family, but to all of us. Um, for many people, human dignity has something to do with the ability to contribute, to participate, to think and reason, and for Donna, that's not enough. And I think for many of us, I mean, I'm not a philosopher, but I think for many of us, instinctively, intuitively, that's not enough. Um, 
And so, as Donna has just been describing, I think, I hope I'm not um, kind of misrepresenting her here or um, making the complexity of her argument seem too simple, but I think what she comes down to is the conclusion that we're all some mother's child and um, that that relationship of being able to be having the potential to receive love is sacred to civil society and that's something that I think we might come back to in a minute and talk about whether that we can also kind of extrapolate from that to think about old people like that but I wanted to ask you first of all Donna um, you talk at one point about the revulsion that people sometimes feel when they think about you dealing with Nicholas's disabilities and in particular the fact that he's incontinent and so on and it strikes me that that revulsion is also something that people feel very strongly towards old people and that is part of the problem with our trying to be humane in the way that we organise caring and that we organise society around the people who are vulnerable and I wanted to ask you why you think it is that um, people find dependency so frightening um, well I think there are a couple of things that feed into um, the fact that we are so dependency averse in um, our society first of all um, the idea of independence is the central um, aspiration of uh, government policies of, um, uh, of, of, of most people. I mean, I think that we really are at a time in uh, our civilization and the human history of our world where we, um, we have somehow got to a point where we feel that um, we should not be dependent on anyone else, um, and 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 the 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 effect that that has had on us is not only um, do we find it very difficult or um, um, not it, not palatable to give care. Uh, it's even worse the idea to receive care. Um, and um, I've had conversations recently with. Uh, um, a philosopher from um, the State University of New York, Eva Kate, who writes very eloquently on this topic. And um, I blogged recently um, talking about that I think there is a poverty of knowledge and experience in our society in receiving care. And my idea was to take sort of year two children and, and um, Put, make them sit opposite each other and one sit on their hands and be blindfolded and the other feed them and they need to receive care with grace and with politeness and with dignity and this interaction needs to be practiced and valued um, um, and we, we had an interesting conversation about that she said ooh we <laughs> seem to be plugged into the same computer but if, if, if that were the case if you know an education authority could buy into that idea. Uh, certainly, a teacher who could uh, be lent to to, um, to to lead that lesson would be Nicholas, because yes. he's he's very um, he receives his care with great grace um, and patience and dignity. Sure, it's interesting that you mention Eva Kate because you write in your book, I think, about the conversation that she had with. Jeff McMahon and Peter Singer, who, um, for those of you who don't know, are animal rights activists, um, and who have used animal rights as a, who have used the question of animal rights 
or use the question of disability rather, to promote animal rights and have asked why should a person with no cognitive function be valued above um, a monkey or a pig. Um, and Eva Cate has a very pungent sort of response to that, doesn't she? Well, she does. I mean, I think, you know, that is, um, that's a conversation that took place um, at a conference that she organized um, at her university. And I think at the time, I mean, I've seen, um, I've seen the film of it. And Eva is a mother of her daughter, Sisha, is 34. And her daughter, Sisha, has um, multiple disabilities, including severe cognitive uh, disabilities. And when um, Jeff McMahon said to her, well, um, where would you place Sisha? Would you, com you know, is it reasonable to compare her human personhood to that of a pig? Um, she just, she just put her head in her hands. She couldn't really respond to that. She said she felt sick. Um, so, but it's later, of course, uh, in retrospect, that she formally responded um, to that and um, um, simply said, you know, if you respect. Um, the fact that I love my daughter and that uh, I, I want to protect my daughter and that I care for my daughter, then you have to, um, you can't say that she has no worth. Um, so it was this idea which she has uh, written extensively about of some mother's son. We are all some mother's child or some mother's daughter that is the very s sacred central idea um, that there is no one outside, there is no human that can be excluded from humanity. Um, and uh, it, it, there's, I did a lot of research on this question because I had to begin to think, uh, what are the capabilities that I want to talk about that are particular to my family if I want to apply the capability approach to our family experience individually and collectively, what are the capabilities that I can articulate that are outside of everybody else's capabilities? And so the first one was the capability of Nicholas to be, and um, how should we be supported in supporting him? Um, so how do you carve up the deal between government, community, family, and the individual, and what are the responsibilities and roles within that configuration? So the first thing, you can't even have that discussion um, until you say that he's worth it, he's worth talking about. He's, he has the right to be, and we all accept that he has equal human worth to you and me and everybody else. So um, uh, that's not as easy as it would at first seem <laughs> to argue that he does, or that someone with severe dementia who is not in control of their faculties and who requires total care. There are many people, I mean, Martin Amos, um, two years ago, uh, glibly said, and it was all over the papers, that in the UK, with the demographic of aging populations, that there should be a euthanasia booth on every street corner where you get a, um, um, a metal and a martini because the state's not going to support you once you can't look after yourself. And why should the state, he argues. So um, there we have Nicholas represents one of the first generation of children with severe disabilities who've grown up to survive. 
and this is a new demographic, and some children with less severe forms of disability are likely to outlive their parents. So this is a social reality that we are not prepared for, and we need to have a public discussion about how we really feel about dependency, I think. Yes, and in both the case of Nicholas and severely disabled children, and in the case of older people, what we're talking about is the other, really. Yes. It's, um, these are people, I mean, in both cases, as you say, severely disabled children would not have survived in previous ages and um, older people would not have survived in the numbers that they're going to survive in previous ages. So we're talking, about, um, we're talking about a condition of existence that people sometimes find it difficult to imagine and that it behoves us all to make the kind of imaginative leap to, um, to absorb those people into our notion of what a good society is. But I want to ask you what you say to people, and presumably people do say to you, well, why it is expensive to keep taxpayers alive, and um, to keep um, Nicholas alive. It's expensive to keep old people alive um, and to give them proper care. Um, why should we, why should we, those of us who are not the family, pay for that? Why should taxpayers pay? Well, I think, um I think it begins with um, a definition of personhood. So if you accept that Nicholas Wright is human, um, then and is th that his life has worth, um, and if you accept that um, if anybody here has a parent with dementia, if you ex accept that that person's life has worth, um, then uh, it, it should be a natural extension to say that we as a civilized society um, support the basic needs of the other. Um, uh, it's only those who are not in the category of the other or in the category of humanity that we might question supporting. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's about the definition of what, it, what is human what is it to be human? And then I think it's perfectly reasonable to begin to talk about um, what is it to give care and receive care? And I spend a lot of time really in my book talking about how that is a life enhancing um, uh, uh, activity. And so I'm, I think it is a wonderful thing. And if we lost that in our society, we would be very, very diminished. And I think that we need to begin to look at giving and receiving care and begin to value it differently. It's problematic though, isn't it, because the fact that we feel called upon to give care, those of us who love, um, and the fact that it is immensely rewarding in some ways, lets governments off the hook. And governments have you know, successively, and I'm sure will continue to do, exploited that sense of work that isn't really work um, to avoid getting involved, really. I mean, what's your response to that? How, how, what should be the balance between the family and the state? Well, that's where the capability approach, I think, is very, very helpful. Because if you apply the capability approach to the caregiver, um, <coughs> I think the state has a duty to support the caregiver to be the best caregiver they can be, but, and that includes 
uh, not exploiting the caregiver. And so um, caregivers, by virtue of the fact that they love their charge, are very vulnerable to exploitation. Um, so, uh, however, if you look at, if you ask someone who gives a lot of care on a regular basis, um, uh, what are what is a life that you value? What is you personally? And a lot of people will say a life that I value is um, support and help in looking after the person. They will not say I don't want to look after that person anymore. Um, I mean, I think if you love someone, you want to be with them to make sure they're all right. Ask anybody who has children they adore. So, um, so it's not about um, relinquishing that responsibility. It's being supported in it. And Kate calls this idea, and again, she's very articulate on this subject. She calls it dulia, and the idea that when the mother, the analogy she uses it, mother who's just had a baby, everyone takes care of the mother and the rest of the family so the mother can look after her baby. But, you know, there's somebody else in the kitchen making the meals. It's about supporting the mother in that role of looking after the new baby. So that, that, that idea of dulia extended, applied to society at large, also encompasses the notion of reciprocity. So there needs to be a reciprocal ethical agreement between if I give this care um, to my mother, for example, um, and I'm going to t begin to work a four-day week and spend that fifth day looking after my mother, um, what, how can the state acknowledge that contribution? Because that's a civic contribution. Um, and how can her employer begin to support her in that role? So these are all, there's room for a lot of innovative thinking around different models of how to organize our society. But individualism, fast track, uh, short term gain, um, uh, these are ideas that are harmful to moving forward to support our neediest individuals as a society, I think. Nevertheless, they are very prevalent. And um, people, I'm sure, have often asked you, what has made it worthwhile going on? And you know, reading your book, I am astonished that you're still here, really. That <laughs> that you're still here and you know functioning so fabulously because um, it has obviously been extraordinarily tough at times. Um, so, what is your response to when people say, you know, were you was it worth torture to Nicholas and yourself? All this pain and all this suffering and all this stress and worry and Mm. Well, you know, I think there's always a different answer um, when you're in the thick of it. Um, and, you know, I suppose if you ask someone who is a soldier in the middle of Afghanistan, is this war worth it? <laughs> you know, they're, they may, but when they come back and they're in peacetime, they'll say, yeah, probably, yes. And, you know, and, um, but I think when you're in the thick of something very difficult with your child and you're questioning decisions that you as a, a person make or or again um, the aging analogy is so uh, compelling if you put your parent in a, um, a nursing home those fir that first week you think oh no, no how is it worth it is any of it oh it's so painful um, but then things settle down and things get better 
and you think, yeah, of course, um, let's, let's all look at a life we value and have reason to value, and we can, we can do that, and there is hope for that. Um, and I can't say, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said that there weren't times where, you know, Jim and I felt very, very um, desperate and hopeless about the situation and the endless pain and whether our decisions for certain surgeries and all that were the right decisions. So I think um, at those in those days, um, it felt like chaos, and I might not have had a coherent answer to that question. But I think now um, that a certain um, acceptance of Nicholas's life being really mostly in bed, I had to accept that. And before I did, I had a hard time. Yeah. But he's accepted it, we've accepted it, and that's a big um, ingredient to making us feel quite happy. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I think there, ne there needed to be a lot of um, reconciliation to uh, the reality of the situation and also there needed to be a point whereby I had some support um, from the state and I've written in my book that we went through a long uh, drawn out appeal process with um, the authorities in Canada that finally ended in um, a good deal for support for Nicholas. So. And going back, well, this will be my last question, and then perhaps I'm sure people have got lots of questions of their own, but going back to what you were saying about some mother's child, um, I wonder whether you think that that is a position that is sustainable all the way through life, and whether that equally applies to older people. Um, it seems to me that there are many similarities between what you describe going through with Nicholas and the predicaments that families with elderly relatives, perhaps with dementia, are facing, but that they are not identical. And one of the reasons that they're not identical is that you're a mother and Nicholas is your child. Mm -hmm. And it's a slightly different relationship for sons and daughters towards their parents. And there is, I mean, you write very movingly about um, what it means to value someone who has not the capacity to contribute in conventional terms to society. Um, the difference with older people is that they often have contributed to society, yes. which is both, you know, ought to make them worthy of our gratitude, theoretically, but of course, they are then past that point, they're on a sort of decline, we're kind of waiting for them to die, and so there isn't the same sense that a mother feels of a child's potential and a child's um, a, a child's possibility. Um, so I just really, all that's a rather roundabout way of asking you to what mm -hmm. extent you think the situations are identical and do you see any differences really? Yeah, well yes, um, I do. I think there is a certain, first of all, um, uh, there is a certain fundamental, um, I think, idea about humanity and supporting um, hum human beings to be able to live, and um, with 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 elderly people, um, again, a, a lot of it has to do with imagining the other. And um, I was talking to a friend the other day who was a sports therapist. She was I hurt my leg, and she was telling me that she um, was in um, she was doing dissection of cadavers. And I said, "Whoa, what was that like?" 
And she said, well, it didn't bother me until I saw the hand. And I said, well, what? Because not even the face bothered her. And the, you know, the, the skull was opened up and the chest and the leg and everything. She said the hand, it was, she said, it just looks so human. And so sometimes, you know, we have to look for the clues to humanity to be able to understand that that was some mother's child. And we need to actively search and, and with a knowledge that that's important to know. Um, so I think there, there is that. That is what is the same about the aging business. But I think, um, I think the other thing is that there is, um, there has to be a knowledge that there is uh, love or the potential of, of a loving relationship in that person's life and that that loving relationship or the potential of it needs to be, um, or the memory of it needs to be um, upheld as a civic virtue and something worth celebrating. Um, with, um, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? Well, on that, I was just thinking about John Bailey's book um, about Iris Murdoch. Yeah. Um, and it's such a moving book because here is a woman who was a world-class philosopher yes. and has ceased to be, is, is suffering from Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And yet, John Bailey's love seems completely undiminished and unchanged. And obviously, it's not the full story because in the end, she couldn't live at home anymore and, you know, it, it must have been very, very difficult. But the... But what, what it is clear that this man who was phenomenally articulate, and you, you would imagine that their life would be all about kind of talking about big ideas over breakfast, what he actually loved about his wife was not that she talked about big ideas over breakfast, but was something really essential and sort of central to her being, which was largely inexplicable. Um, and I suppose that's what we're kind of looking for, really. Mm -hmm. That's what we're sort of honouring. Yes, and I think absolutely, so well put. And, you know, because when you're with someone who um, does not have cognitive capacity, um, you enter another, well, it's another border crossing, you, you enter another way of being, being present, um, that involves um, touch, sound. Um, it's very much, it's much more fundamental, and it's so fully human. It's like when you have a baby and you, you hold your baby as immediately after birth on your bare chest. It's that kind of elemental connection between people. What's hard with elderly people is that you've known another way of being and it's the transition into back to fundamental that's really hard. But um, if we knew a little bit more about it and we had some way of teaching, um, that it's valuable and that it should be celebrated, um, then perhaps we wouldn't be so afraid to go there. It's a it's because it's a different vocabulary. Yes, it does. I mean, what you're suggesting actually does require turning an enormous amount of our assumptions kind of on their head. I yes. mean, what you're arguing for in your book is that we ask Nicholas what is valuable about his life and what he has reason to value, and then we do our best to make sure that that is fulfilled. That's correct. And that we do that for his carers as well. Mm -hmm. And that is a very different way of looking at other people from the way that we currently look at them. Yes, and if you take the case of dementia, if, the, if what is val valuable to a person with severe dementia 
is to have 27 um, stuffed toys on their bed, we have no business judging that. That is what they value, and we need to buy them those toys and put them on their bed. Great, well, <clears throat> thank you very much. And thank you. And Well, we're just going to open it up now to questions. I think it'd be very nice if you if you can ask a question. If you could just first introduce yourself. Um, my name is in one part of my life, Anne Callan, another part of my life, Anne Barker. Donna and I go to church together, and she has displayed through this something that's fundamental, which is compassion. We all focus on passion. discussion in um, the social inclusion and active citizenship movement about whether people should be incentivized to be compassionate and to give, you know, befriending and give care. Well, it's the big society argument. So, um, <clears throat> and should, you know, should people be paid to um, make friends with someone who is a street person or if, that, you know, so um, it's interesting. I mean, I I think that uh, if if we have inspired leadership, um, and there is a just a simple decision to um, to deal with these issues, these social issues, rather than essentially not deal with them, like the, hypothetically, let's say there's a decision to deal with them, then I think there are a very uh, some very interesting economic opportunities there, and I'm a huge fan of. Um, the work of Sir, Sir Ronald Cohen here in the UK, who is looking at uh, transforming the economics of social ex exclusion um, and um, opening up social enterprise, uh, developing uh, social impact uh, bonds and social investment bank um, 
And really, um, there, the, the ethical um, idea that is going to have to be turned around there is persuading people to look at long-termism in a business plan rather than short-termism and um, high profit. Because if you begin to create business plans that deal, that have a double bottom line and um, address a social uh, problem as well as um, making a profit that mostly goes back into the business, then you have um, a certainly a different business model than um, what people are used to in recent times, which would be, uh, you know, looking for higher profits in a shorter period of time. So, but I think there is an opportunity. I mean, there's going to be high unemployment. Let's have a thing collectively about how to deal with this where we can achieve several objectives at the same time. Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a morphed version of a quote um, by Thomas Merton, who was um, a very kind of popular, um, uh, popular philosopher and Christian philosopher in, um, I think he was writing around the 1960s. And um, he, uh, he, there's a quote that he, used, which was when he entered a monastery, um, he went into his cell where he was going to live, his room, and the other um, brother in the order closed the door, and Thomas Merton found himself in the new, in the four walls of his new freedom. And it's the idea of being in a very um, enclosed space, um, and it's the capability space, and you need to, there's no getting out of it, but this is your capability space. And it, no matter how small it is, you, how do you begin to look around really carefully at your own space and see what can I do here? What can I do? Because I do have freedom here about what is it. And so it's about, um, you know, um, making friends with, is with isolation and solitude and understanding the richness in that experience and w what exactly uh, are the capabilities and the doings and functionings within very narrow opportunities even. 
I'd just like to say, it would be great if you could kind of give us a definition of, is it Sewa? S-E-W-A. But also, I just wanted to say that um, I think you described something like this. So there's a sort of metaphor for it in the book, um, where you're at a very, very low point, and you start gardening. Mm -hmm. And you you say, I mean, there's nothing else you can do, really. You can just garden, that's all you can do. And you say, there's, uh, I just noted it down, it's so impressed me. There is transcendence, there is grace. I began to think that peeling potatoes, raking leaves, and mixing cakes were all a sort of prayer. And I think, you know, there's always a kind of room for, there's a room for manoeuvre. Yes. And that, you know, and, and, and at another point in the book, you, you, you sort of say, okay, right, I'll give up choosing. The paradox of being free is that you have to give up the choosing self, and you have to say, okay, I'll sit here and I'll watch and I'll wait, and I'll wait for Nicholas's next crisis. And that will, you know, that will be my choice to give up choosing. Um, mm -hmm. so. Yes, and I, you know, it's interesting because in re doing so much research and looking at um, a huge body of research of um, academics um, studying mothers like me, because there is a body of research on that out there, um, it's so common. We all say the same thing. Yeah. Hi, my name is Deborah Trenchard. I, um, I mothered my disabled daughter, Tiffany, for 20 years. So like Donna, I've had possible experience of the hospital appointments, etc., etc., because she'd never had an operation. I wonder if Tiffany was about five. At age five, Tiffany had the mentality of maybe six months old, but she still had to go to school. And I remember 
think it's very, very valuable, mm -hmm. um, what you've said, but I have to say that I don't think, I, I disagree, that, um, the that the value of our children is in the fact that they require care so they make, um, they teach people compassion. Oh no, that's not what I meant. Because they're where they are. You know, my daughter was my daughter was born the way she was born. Yeah. Okay. What she has done, what I have observed, and this is just my personal opinion, is what they bring out in other people. Right. But you see, yeah. I I I think if if they were sitting there outside mm -hmm. on that day mm -hmm. and there was no one else there. Mm -hmm. Do they still have value and worth by themselves? That's what I had to come to grips with. And I think that I argued, I did my best mm -hmm. to argue, they do. They do yes. And it doesn't matter that they bring anything out in anybody else. Because um, I feel, well, um, I, I had to find how, in what way do they have worth so there was um, one fellow that I looked at who was a theological anthropologist, and he said uh, people with severe cognitive disabilities, because where we, the real sticking point is cognition. You are human if you have practical reason. And so that's why on the hierarchy and the disability movement, you've got um, <coughs> paraplegics at the very top, mental illness, uh, or um, a severe cognitive disability, add to that an addiction, and you're really at the bottom of the barrel because you, you, you have no mental capacity. So that puts people out of the human league. Um, but, I, you know, Hans Reinders said that because we all receive God's love equally, we're all equal. So then, I proposed this to the Capability Network to a couple of education experts, um, um, Elaine Unterhalter and Melanie Walker, and they said, oh, maybe you can think of a humanist definition, because you better not write that. You better not write Reinders. It's, it's, it's not secular. It's not, it's, not, it's not properly academic. So I said, okay. And I'm not an academic even. I was just going, okay, okay. <laughs> and um, so uh, I, then I found Kite. We are all some mother's child. And we receive love, or we have the potential of receiving love, because then, of course, somebody says, what about the abandoned baby? We have, you know, we understand what it is to love you know, to have that fundamental love bond between um, the parent and child. So, uh, real or imagined potential, that's what it is. If I could just say, I think there are two things going on here which are um, <clears throat> not necessarily mutually exclusive. No, quite right. One is that, as John Ralston Saul says in the foreword to your book, what has happened with Nicholas is that everyone who has been drawn into a circle around him, and I believe John Paulson's also has or has had a disabled child. Brother. Brother, that's right. Um, what, what happens is that the people who are drawn into the circle realize that the benefit is not, in fact, for Nicholas or for the disabled person. It is at least as much to themselves. So there is a kind of huge value 
in being involved and being in, in a circle around someone who requires care. But at the same time, that is, that is and I, I completely agree, Donna, that cannot be the justification for their existence. Because, you know, as, as also as you say in your book, you know, if, there's a dem is the, if there's a woman with dementia and she is visited by her elderly sister and that her elderly sister loves her devotedly, what happens if her elderly sister dies? Does she, the woman with dementia then cease to have value? It, it, we can't, I mean, it's impossible to think of it like that, really. But, but the two things are not mutually exclusive. No, they're not. I mean, I think there are both very powerful realities that we need to hang on to. We need to hook policies onto those ideas, and they are. But I think if you want to talk about the real nub of how we value um, people we don't understand, it's very difficult to imagine being a person uh, who could enter this room who's, you know, really different. It's hard enough trying to imagine being someone from a different culture. A man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it is. It is. Um, Mary Lou Finland. Donna, it's not a question, but maybe you could tell the audience about Nicholas going to the football match. I think it's just so wonderful and the enjoyment he got out of it. Just so that they see another side to Nicholas. Remember when he went about two years ago? Oh, he goes to. Well, he goes. He Oh, at to Liverpool, yeah. That was when we first moved to England, and he's a big Liverpool uh, football supporter. Well, he's not doing too well right now, but um, and um, yeah, he was he was a little bit stronger when I, he wouldn't be able to do this now. But at the time, um, it was his 18th birthday present, and we gave him a train trip up to Liverpool. He stayed overnight with his helper, and he went to Liverpool. Um, match and sat on the and um, on the pitch because that's where the wheelchairs are right on the pitch and um, and he had a, a tour a private tour of um, what's the pitch called Anfield yeah so um, he was uh, he, he and then he came home made a DVD my Liverpool experience and it's a slideshow set to music of course you'll never walk alone um, and you know, yeah, he, he has, I mean, I swear, he's had so many uh, fun and interesting experiences. He, <coughs> he had tickets for My Chemical Romance at Wembley the other night, which is a rock band. <laughs> but he could do an outing like that maybe once a week. You wouldn't want to push him to do it more than that nowadays. But, um, yeah, he can do it. He'll come home. He'll be pretty sore. But he says, no, it's, it's, it's worth it to me. This is what I choose. So, it's got a big life and a big personality. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, I brought home a piece of the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stole some grass off it. <laughs> Oh, social networking. Ah, uh, social networking is a really fantastic bonus for the dis for the disability community or for social exclusion um, in general. Technology is um, um, 
absolutely, uh, I'm a huge fan of technology. And um, so Nicholas in his room has a big screen TV that is connected to his computer. His computer is connected to Canada where there's a box at um, uh, Jim's cousin's house so Nicholas can watch Canadian television via his computer on his big screen TV so he never w misses a hockey game. And um, again, he has a blog. Um, social networking uh, is um, very, very interesting because a lot of people um, you know, have problems with privacy and so forth. Um, my colleagues in Canada have developed um, a social networking tool that is absolutely private and secure to assist people to coordinate their efforts of, in supporting and looking after a person with care needs. It's called TIES and we use it um, um, all the time with Nicholas. So everybody who cares about and helps to look after Nicholas is invited to this secure network. So, um, um, uh, for example, his um, his care uh, rota of all the workers when they're working is there. His medical chart's there in a vault, so it's on the address bar. It's got that lock thing that you see if you're banking, um, and you can make a task list. So uh, Nicholas wants to buy a book. Um, you can sign up and say, "I want to buy." Um, I, I will. I will offer to help Nicholas purchase this book. So it's it's a very very um, broad application of a conversation between anybody who cares about Nicholas. If Nicholas is um, having some difficulties with medications, we invite his uh, his um, doctor to be part of the Ties Network, so he can uh, log on and see how Nicholas has done. Uh, during the day. So it's very, very useful. I'm a big fan of uh, social networking and its applications for people who are housebound or and who want to help them. It shrinks time and, and space, so I think it's great. But one of Nicholas's helpers is here. I'm looking right at Andy over there, who's an IT expert. Anderson. Anderson. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not Andy? <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought it was. I didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> yeah. Very close. Yes, I'm Fred Mulder. Um, what about the difference in care between Canada and the UK? Um, yeah, it, well, it's interesting um, the way everyone comes at it uh, differently. Um, I would say that um, there is a little bit more in Canada of um, the idea that people should be able to get on and do it themselves. There has been an enormous effort, I think, to um, to kind of download responsibilities to families. Um, for example, Nicholas's tube fed, that used to be uh, a nursing um, duty, and it was funded by the government as a nursing duty. Then it became a home care duty by a non-nursing professional. Now, it's not, a, it's not funded at all. You sort of make the school lunches, you walk the dog, you tube feed. Not a problem. And um, 
So all of these uh, formerly kind of medical type care issues are really no longer being funded um, by the state in, in Canada. They sort of look at your big package and they'll put you on a waiting list. But um, it's, uh, I mean, if, if you have high needs, of course you have some care. But in the same way that parenting is, I mean, I look at what parents expect of themselves um, uh, in Canada, particularly where it's not okay to have help in the home. Oh, I clean my own house. Oh, we would never have a nanny. That's not, um, uh, it's not sort of acceptable. Women put themselves under ridiculous amounts of of pressure that you should be the volleyball coach, you should make the snacks for uh, your kinder, your kids' kindergarten class, and volunteer on the community center board of directors at the same time as your, you know, uh, training for the Olympics or something. It's ridiculous. So um, I think, uh, you know, there is that. You do see that quite a bit in Canada, um, and uh, although I think all governments. Um, are struggling to figure out how uh, to uh, meet these needs without the progressively the progressive numbers of catastrophic family breakdowns that we see in the newspaper with real tragedies occurring and so forth. But I don't know. I mean, I think um, I think in the UK, obviously, there are going to be some very deep cuts coming up. This is what we're reading about in the papers on a practically a daily basis, um, and I think there will be. Uh, some opportunity for the third sector and for social enterprise to step in. Um, the UK is further ahead in social enterprise and I think um, we need to learn from that experience in Canada too. So, Any other questions? Absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think um, with my family, um, I've said in the book, my husband um, is here and we, I mean, I'll, you can speak to that too, but the first thing I want to say, because uh, I feel very, very strongly about this, is that every family manages their kids and their life and their responsibilities differently. And more particularly, everybody manages uh, chaos and difficult family events differently. And um, we we chose the way that we managed our family circumstances, and we fell into roles that worked for us. Um, and I um, was doing a lot of well, I was doing a lot of most of Nicholas's care because. Jim was uh, working and involved in, a, in a, um, a, a real career path and I wanted to support him in that um, for the good of all of us. Um, and the analogy that I use in the book is that, um, you know, if you're swimming the English Channel, um, you need somebody in a boat beside you and you can't all be in the water. So, or you all drown. Um, so, I think for, for us, that's the way it was, but that does not begin to describe the fact that my husband 
was up every 45 minutes at night and trying to do his job too and bringing um, you know getting up at seven o'clock to bring the whole family skiing and Jim would ski with Nicholas um, and Nicholas would be in a sit ski so I mean we, we we did it's a it's a family business and we all found our roles but I mean I was trying to write a book about social policy ethics economics and I think largely it is a women's issue um, uh, because women do and there, there's the whole issue of single mothers and so on um, but that's obviously not to say that men don't have a completely central role and I'll look forward to um, a man writing a book about just that issue I think we need to have the this public discussion um, on all fronts but I wonder if you have anything to say about that Jim <laughs> I think it was a it was a family. It was a team effort uh, and for the eighteen nineteen years before we came back to London in two thousand six. Um, it seemed as though when one of us was flagging, the other would step up to the plate, uh, and then when that person started to fail a little bit, uh, the other partner was able to put in the extra hours. 
too. I wanted to ask you a little bit about John Rawls because it seems to me that you, you confronted us with two very powerful and important political questions. One is why we should have an infinite regard for the other, as Andy put it. And, and the second one is that if we have an infinite regard for the other, how would that regard be expressed, mobilised, and campaigned for politically and practically? And, you know, it's the big society issue there. I, I don't want to go into that. But in terms of the, the first argument about the why we should have an infinite regard for the other, your main response seemed to be that we, everybody is somebody's mother's son. And I wonder, you know, what about the Rawlsman insight that there, but for the grace of God, <coughs> go I. It's not satisfactory for this population. I don't. I think. I think it's very limited, the Rawlsian um, idea. Um, and I think uh, is that. Oh, sorry, is that your question? Well, it seems to me, in a, in a way, I mean, I can see why you're going to say it's unsatisfactory, but it's also quite a radical injunction. I mean, because politically, you've got to fight against very vulgar forms of libertarianism mm -hmm. and the idea that somehow we make our own destinies. Um, but in a very real sense, I mean, we are the random products of genetics, time and space, and so on. And what Rawls is saying to us, I think, is the social contract idea that goes back a long way, of course, is that things could have been very different. I could have been Nicholas. I could have been you. Yes. could have been anybody in this group. Mm -hmm. um, I, so, I, I, in, in many ways, I think it's quite a radical injunction. But I'd be interested to know why you think it's. Well, because the school. response to that is, but I'm not. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, um, I, I think you have to uh, go another step. I mean, I think that, if, like, even Martha Nussbaum said that, um, you know. Um, pretty much every philosopher looking at these issues has said that there's a there's a gap in John Rawls where disability is concerned and it needs to be dealt with and so Martha Nussbaum tried to to deal with it in Frontiers of Justice and she didn't succeed I mean I thought she was terrible um, and she and now lately her latest thing in the Journal of Metaphilosophy I have a couple of academics here I don't know if you've seen it but her latest thing is, um, well, she's come around all right, but she's going up the, um, the rights path and saying that people with disabilities uh, should be given the vote, but it should be by proxy, and we're talking about cognitive disabilities here, but it should be proxy and also jury duty. And um, again, proxy, and my question would be, I mean, it's just not practical. Like, who's going to look after your son or daughter when you're doing jury duty? I mean... Well, anyway, the, you know, um, I really think that, to, to answer your question, because we could be here all day discussing, of course, um, but to answer the question, I think the, the problem with Rawls is that it's perfectly easy to, um, to kind of nod your head, believe everything John Rawls said, and he was a complete genius. He just wasn't thinking about the Nicholas Wrights of this world when he when he wrote. And so I think that my problem is personally with his um, writing and how how I think about how it might affect um, and, and, and my own family experiences that others could perfectly well say, well, you know, um, in a random world, um, I'm not Nicholas Wright. You know, it didn't turn out that way. And you could still be in compatible with Rawls. I mean, I, I think he wasn't thinking of, 
clear, I think, to me in his writing that he wasn't thinking of people like Nicholas when he wrote um, the theory of justice. Yeah. Well, as you say, Donna, we, we could go on for a lot longer. I think yeah. many people in this room would be happy to go on for a lot longer, but I suspect that we, we need to disperse and somebody else might be coming in. Uh, I think we've had a, a fabulous and very intelligent conversation this afternoon, so very grateful for Geraldine for being such a good discussant and respondent. But most of all, Donna, thanks very much for... Thank you.